This is a Sunday talk by Joel, titled "Remember to Remember," recorded June eighteenth, nineteen ninety-five, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. Although, from a mystical point of view, the obstacles to realization are basically the same for everybody: delusion, desires, attachments, and so forth. Each of us is configured. In a unique way, or these obstacles are configured in us in a unique way. So some people have,、uh, for instance, very strong greed, and that may be a particular obstacle for them. Other people may have tremendous pride. Other people may have、um, oh, uh, envy.、Uh, other people may have strong intellectual delusions and misunderstandings. Other people may have.、Um, A very strong、uh, attachment to emotions and so forth. So people are very different individually.、Uh, these obstacles are arranged in them very differently based on their conditioning and their these they call it their karma and so forth. And as a result, all the mystical traditions have a variety of teachings and practices, and some of them have a great variety of teachings and practices. And if you、uh, if you look at all the traditions together, you find a great great variety of Teachings and practices, and this is all well and good.、Uh, this is the Buddhists talk about this as、uh, having skillful means. The Buddha has、uh, many practices and teachings because there are many kinds of seekers. And as Mike mentioned earlier, we're all very lucky here at the center to have a library where you can get the cream of the cream of the great mystical traditions. And we're all very lucky to have a librarian, Jennifer, who's put that library together for us and made it available. So this is an excellent thing. However, It can be a drawback, and especially at、uh, a place like the center where we teach from all these different traditions,、uh, sometimes a seeker can be overwhelmed、uh, by all these practices and teachings.、Uh, it's kind of an embarrassment of riches, and I think particularly if you're a householder. Uh, when you're not under the day-to-day -day direction of a spiritual teacher, and you're not、uh, in a monastic situation where you really do one practice for a while and and really get to know it thoroughly, and then move on in a pretty systematic way to other practices and so forth. So, as a householder, we have very little、uh, time comparatively for、uh, formal spiritual practice. We have all these different kinds of teachings and teachers, and sometimes that can be rather overwhelming, and it can be discouraging and confusing, to say the least. So, I think it's important every once in a while to remind ourselves of what are the basics, and not to lose sight of them, because as long as you remember the basics, you'll be able to move forward, and you'll be able to take on practices that suits you at a particular stage in your in your path. So.、Uh, How can we、uh, how can we keep in mind the basics? What are the basics? Ananda Moyamai, who's a great,、uh, she was a great、uh, Hindu mystic of this century, wrote, "To know oneself is to know God, and to know God is to know oneself. To know yourself is to know God, and to know God is to know yourself. And really, this sums up very succinctly all mystical teachings of all traditions." The translation is the word God.、Uh, traditionally in Hinduism, it'd be Brahman, or it might be Shiva, or, or if you're one of the other branches of Hinduism,、uh, the Tao. The Tao is、uh, what you cannot depart from. The Tao is your true self. The Buddha nature is your true self. If you know your true self, you know the Buddha nature. 
Um, Jesus said, I and the Father am one. Uh, so if you know yourself, you know the Father. If you know the Father, you know yourself. All traditions have this as a central, central teaching. And the reason it's put this way is because this is our fundamental delusion. We don't realize this. We don't know it. Spelled with a G. We don't have gnosis of it. And that is, uh, from that uh, delusion flows all our suffering and so forth. So we feel ourselves, we experience ourselves, not just think and believe, which we normally do, but we also actually experience ourselves as separate from the divine, whatever name you want to use for it. So because of this delusion, we live in this duality. And if you have no conception of the divine, which a lot of people in this culture don't, you at least experience a duality between yourself and the world, I and other, subject and object. And under this uh, delusion of duality, then, we have two basic approaches to a spiritual path. And you could uh, formulate them in the terms of two different questions. One is, who or what am I? And the other is, who or what is God, or Buddha nature, or Brahman, or whatever term you want to use. And if you pursue either of those questions, you will discover what Anandamoyamai said. You will discover the underlying essential unity here. And you will be uh, relieved of this delusion of duality. And it doesn't really matter, uh, ultimately, which of the two questions you pursue. And in point of fact, they're not exclusive. You can pursue a spiritual path asking both questions at the same time. But in a, in a sense, the, these two questions tell us what a spiritual path is all about. And everything else, all the practices and all the teachings are about how to pursue those two questions. So that's really basic. Who am I or who is God? And eventually, of course, they said they become one question. or They, be, they conjoin. If we ask then, what is the best question for me? What should I inquire into? If you ask yourself that. I think that uh, if you are totally deluded, totally lost, <laughs> meaning you have no experience of the divine. Uh, you have the, the word God or Brahman or whatever, any of these other words have no meaning for you. So if you're like that, and by the way, that was my case, it's probably better for you to start with the question, who am I? And anybody can start with that question because you do have a sense of yourself. So the only prerequisite to make that inquiry is to have enough humility that perhaps you don't know everything about who you are. A lot of people don't have that humility. They think they know who they are, and they cannot really begin a spiritual path. But if that question arises, if you have some curiosity about it, and if you have enough humility to think, well, maybe there's something in here, uh, something mysterious, something I don't know about, then you can begin a spiritual path. You can begin a spiritual path asking that question, who am I, without the slightest belief in any kind of divinity or, or divine dimension to life or anything like that, and without any experience of that. If you pursue that question, you will start to have experience of divinity. And that's when the, the two questions start to, to come together. But if you are a little bit more advanced, not quite so totally lost in delusion, then you can start uh, with the question, who is God? It's a little bit like skipping kindergarten, going right into first grade. And the, the way to ask yourself this, uh, the way to tell for yourself is ask, do, have, I, have I experienced something that I would call the divine? 
And do I take it seriously? In other words, not something you just dismiss. And if you've had that, and most people have, you trust your own experience, and you value it, then you can proceed directly to asking this question, who is God? Who is the divine? So this is the uh, question I want to talk about this morning. And then in the, in the simplest possible way, how could you begin to find the answer to this question? So I want to strip it down in, uh, to, to really the, the, the absolutely simplest things you could do. One of the things you could start with is reading the mystics, and that's a big help. But primarily, when the mystics talk about the divine or God, what you're going to learn is uh, really f what God is not. And this is a good, uh, a very valuable lesson, particularly if you've been brought up in a more fundamentalist, exoteric kind of religion. Uh, the Upanishads, the ancient Hindu texts, say, He comes to the thought of those who know him beyond thought, not to those who imagine he can be attained by thought. <clears throat> And Al-Juniyad, a great Sufi, says, Gnosis consists in knowing that whatever may be imagined in thy heart, God is the opposite of it. So whatever you think of God, whatever you think God is, whatever you think you know about God, God's the opposite. That ain't God. The Hindus have a, a whole little practice. Neti, neti. Not this, not this. Everything you encounter, uh, thoughts, whatever it is, you, you realize no, this isn't God, not this, not this. Ultimately, it's all God. This is a practice. It's a relative teaching. If you keep pursuing that, you find that, that formless dimension, and then you find that there's actually no distinction between form and formlessness. So it's, it's a, a, a method here. Why? Why do these mystics say that? Meister Eckhart explains why. The divine being is equal to nothing, and in it there is neither image nor form. So whenever your thought uh, and your imagination tries to grasp God, it, you're grasping an image or a form. And so automatically, in a certain sense, you're hiding God just by doing that. It's not that you can't use form as a focal point to follow this question. But really, truly speaking, you, uh, it's very important to remember that God is a mystery and will always be a mystery to the conceptual mind in that sense. Always be a mystery. The conceptual mind is never going to discover who God is. So once we get uh, at least get a, uh, a glimmer of that from reading the mystics, the testimony of the mystics, that steers us away from a lot of useless effort, sit around trying to uh, philosophize about, God's, about God. Now, for some people, that takes a long time, by the way. The habit of doing that is very strong. And uh, it's not something you can just uh, volitionally drop. But eventually, by struggling with it, and, and if you are struggling with it, it's good to struggle with it uh, conceptually until you get to the point where you realize it cannot be conceived, and then the mind will give up. So, if we can't know God by thought, how can we be, at least begin to know God? And here's what Theophane the Recluse says about it. Theophane the Recluse was a great uh, mystic from the uh, Eastern Orthodox Christian tradition. And he says... The essence of the whole thing is to be established in the remembrance of God and to walk in his presence. To be established in the remembrance of God. Now, remembrance is an interesting word here because it has a, a lot of meanings. Uh, one of the meanings is uh, that 
in point of fact, we know who God is because God is us. We've forgotten. That's one way of uh, describing delusion. We've simply forgotten what our true nature is. And so to re remember, to remember fully is to find the answer to this question. Who is God? You will remember. Uh, or it will be remembered, I should say, technically. Remember also has an interesting meaning because it means, uh, if we break the word up, to remember has the idea in it that something was dismembered. And we can think of that as describing this duality that arises out of ignorance. The world, the self, God have all been dismembered in our experience. And to remember is to uh, reunite, so to speak. But uh, we can also take this word in its, in its everyday um, obvious meaning, to remember, to remember God during the course of the day. And this is the best place to start. I said I want to simplify this. Sometimes our own supposed sophistication defeats us. But uh, Theophanes uses means all these things, but uh, it also includes that just very practical level. The, whole, the essence of the whole thing is to be established in the remembrance of God and to walk in his presence. Now, this is not just a Christian teaching either. The Quran says, Your foremost duty is to remember Allah. Let neither your riches nor your children beguile you of Allah's remembrance. Interesting, your foremost duty. The most important thing is, is just to remember Allah, to remember God. Shankara, who's a great Hindu mystic, says, Let there be no negligence in your devotion to Brahman. Negligence in the practice of recollection is death. Recollection is another word for remember. Why? And he gives us a clue. Through negligence in recollection, a man is distracted from awareness of his divine nature. So if we, if we don't remember, even just in this very practical everyday meaning of the word, if we go about our business and we just don't remember, we don't remember we're on a spiritual path, we don't remember uh, that we are seekers and so forth, we get distracted. And we're constantly being distracted by all our worldly activities and our desires and our aversions and our attachments and everything. And so there can't be any kind of wisdom coming into this situation. And ultimately, he says, this is, this is a, a tantamount to death, because if you are totally identified with that body-mind, with all its desires and attachments and so forth, when that body-mind dies, you're going to die. And you're going to have a rough time of it. So quite literally, uh, this is uh, ultimately, at the bottom of this is also the mystery of your own life and death. So how can we start to remember to recollect. What can we do just as, in practice as seekers? One of the most common and obvious things to do is prayer. It's used, you find prayer in every single tradition, including Buddhist traditions. As Rumi says, separation from God is a well. Remembrance of him is a rope. At the bottom of the well, a Joseph clings to the rope. What a beautiful image. Very just nice, beautiful, concrete, poetic image. Our separation, our supposed separation, our delusion of separation, creates this sense that we are alone at the bottom of this well. And 
God's up there in this image, and what is the what is the uh, means to reconnect is prayer. It's the rope that dangles down, and we are like Joseph in the bottom of the well. That comes from a I don't know if it's in the Judo Christian Bible as well, but it's a uh, it's in the Quran. There's some story about Joseph being thrown into a well. So here we are. We find ourselves in this position and uh, uh, stuck in the bottom of this well. And there's this rope hanging out. That's the rope of prayer. And anybody can begin a prayer practice. All you need is a little time of solitude in your life. Just a little time. Morning and evening is traditionally the best times to pray. And you don't need any special postures. You don't need a special room. You could go out on your... Uh, porch, you could take a walk, you can lock yourself in your uh, bedroom or whatever. You don't need any altars, you don't need any incense, you don't need any pillows even, you don't need nothing. <laughs> Just a little, make a little solitude. And then, then the question arises, well, what should I pray? And you know, it doesn't matter. Everybody wants to know what, this is what they asked Jesus, what should we pray? So he gave them the Lord's Prayer. It's interesting, in the whole of uh, the Gospels, it's the only prayer he taught them. He said quite a bit about praying, about going into your closet, don't make a big show of your prayer, and so forth. But it was, you know, finally his disciples bugged him so much, he finally said, all right, <laughs> you have to have some prayer out the hidden. Why don't you say these words? Theophane says it beautifully. He says, the work of God is simple. It is prayer. Children talking to their father without any subtleties. That's so beautifully put. Again, you know, we always we want to find what are the right words, as though there's some magic in the, a magic formula that we could have. There's no magic formula. Children talking to their father without any subtleties. That's beautifully put. This is an opening of the heart. That's where it starts, you know. Sometimes that people start off praying, they say, oh, I'm going to do a prayer practice, and they sit down, and nothing comes. They just don't know what to say. They feel embarrassed and whatnot. So then what can you? Uh, Naman of Bratslav, who was a great Hasidic master, says, well, if you don't know how to pray, make that the subject of your prayer. So that can be your prayer. Teach me to pray. Here I am. I don't know how to pray. I'm trying to learn how to pray, and so forth. If you can't even get those kinds of words out of your mouth, then you can make that the subject of your prayer. Here I am speechless. It's very interesting if you try a prayer practice, particularly if you've never done it before, and uh, and particularly if you view yourself as a sophisticated person, how much self is going to come up immediately. Uh, Eddie Hillison writes about, you know, getting down on her knees. She was a very sophisticated, intellectual young woman. She writes about the embarrassment of it all. And she writes in her diary, it's more embarrassing to write about my praying, this is in the beginning, than it is about my love life. It's a very intimate, intimate thing, you'll realize immediately. Many mystics say that really the best kind of prayer is just one word, a single name, whatever the name of God or the divine or the mystery is to you. Ibn Arabi, a great Sufi, writes, Occupy yourself with zikr, remembrance of God. That's what zikr means, remembrance of God. Occupy yourself with zikr, with whatever zikr you choose. The highest of them is the, is the greatest name. It is your saying, Allah, Allah, and nothing beyond Allah. So just one name, one word, 
can be the beginning of a prayer practice. Uh, Lali Shwari was a great Hindu saint. Uh, she writes, don't look for Shiva. Don't leave your home. Don't even exert yourself to attain him. With a one-pointed mind, repeat, Om Namah Shivaya. It's a little mantra, a little Hindu mantra, Om Namah Shivaya. Listen to this. Don't look for him. Don't, don't, uh, you're not going to find him out there. Don't, you don't even have to leave your home. Going on pilgrimages and stuff is great, but it's not necessary. You don't have to think, oh, I can't, I'm stuck here. I'm tied to this householder's life. I can't go on pilgrimages. It doesn't matter. Don't even exert yourself to attain him. Just one simple thing just begins with this. Just one pointedly repeat this little mantra. Now, it's important that she says uh, one point with one pointed mind. What's so funny? No, that was, the, that was that one pointed mind. Yes. The one simple little thing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> ah, but you see, well, now you see, you're going you're gonna to make it uh, too complex for yourself. You're going to wonder what is this all about. Starting you just do it, see? <laughs> if, it's, if you have a one pointed mind, if it's, a, if it's a, a concentrated repetition, it has tremendous value. If you do it just mechanically, it has no value from a, from a mystical point of view. There's some people who pray, but it's, they were brought up to pray, and you know it's the thing to do, or they feel they're going to be punished if they don't pray, and they sit there and they mumble through the words every day of these rites and rituals. That's not going to get you anywhere. In fact, that's the next thing. It must be a prayer with feeling. You can't just mumble it coldly. And it's not necessarily a feeling of God, like you're in the presence of God. You, if you wait around until you feel that, you're, you're going to be waiting around a long time, unless grace happens to strike you on the head soon. But it's the feeling inside that you want to know God that's important. This is all predicated on your wanting to do this, by the way. This is why I said this is more advanced practice than the real dummies like myself, who had uh, no interest in doing this because we had uh, uh, no belief in any of this. So this is, if you don't, if you don't have a desire to know God, to know the divine, to know this mystery, then you better go back to self-inquiry, begin, begin there. Then you run into trying to get one point and all that. Uh, Theophane says, you must pray not only with words, but with the mind, and not only with the mind, but with the heart, so that the heart feels what the mind is thinking. So if your prayer is with words, the mind's involved here, but the really the essential thing is this, this yearning, this uh, uh, wanting to know. The Hasidic masters say, a person at prayer is like a bed of coals. As long as a single spark remains, a great fire can again be kindled. Always remain attached to God, even in those times when you feel unable to ascend to him. You must preserve that single spark, lest the fire of your soul be extinguished. So we're not talking about, you know, sitting down necessarily, and every time you sit down to pray, or you walk, take a walk and you pray, you're going to have lots of fireworks here. But you have to keep at least that, that interest going in here. And not let it just get, just get mechanical, cold and mechanical. So the first thing you can do is start by setting aside a little time, the morning, evening, little time, solitude, and, and just start a little prayer practice going. And if it's nothing else but just the name of God, just God, 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 that's all you need. But you want to then 
start to bring this remembrance, when this is what it is, your, your little time to remember God, you want to start bringing this into your everyday householder's life. You want to start trying to sustain it throughout the day. So Shankar says, Remember Brahman even while you are asleep. Meditate upon the Atman within your own heart. Now this is, this is the full development of this practice. And you'll read in all traditions this idea of some unceasing prayer. Always remembering God throughout the day and even while you sleep at night. And you think, gee, is this possible? This is supposed to be some sort of exaggeration. But no, it is possible. It truly is possible. But how? Okay. One method to begin this is a formal japa or a formal practice of unceasing prayer. Here's how Ananda Moyamai describes it. While attending to your work with your hands, keep yourself bound to him by a sustaining japa, the constant remembrance of him in your heart and mind. And if it's a real formal japa, and if you're using, let's say, the name of God, that means exactly that. While you're doing the dishes, you're doing your japa. You're thinking God, God, as you're doing the dishes, with that little spark of feeling. Or the laundry, or driving, or gardening, or, you know, whatever you're doing. In the beginning, it's much better to start doing this when you're doing physical tasks rather than mental tasks. But truly speaking, it's possible to sustain this remembrance even when you're doing mental tasks. Then it won't be in the forefront of your mind like a prayer, but it will be this, this, uh, this sense, this mindfulness of the divine. This is what gets into what Theophane said earlier about walking in the presence of God. Having this sense that wherever you move, there's this presence. D.T. Suzuki once described he was doing a koan practice. And this is not a prayer practice, not a devotional practice, but the quality of mindfulness is the same. He's, he was uh, meditating on this Zen koan, and he was also at that time doing a lot of translating of uh, Buddhist uh, uh, texts, and which just takes a lot of intellectual effort and work. And he said, even through this, he said, in the back of my mind, there was that koan. I never lost track of that koan. So this is the, what's being described here. But you can begin it with a very practical, concrete practice of japa. Just remember to do japa. Whenever you start to, you know, brushing your teeth or whatever, just start doing japa. I once uh, went to see a lama when I got back from Lone Pine. I was back in L.A. and I was branched in Tibetan Buddhism. And there were a lot of uh, different schools of Tibetan Buddhism that had taken root in L.A. So I started going around and talking to various lamas from different schools. And this one lama was, uh, I found out about where they were located. It was in a house like this. And I called up and I made an appointment and I went out to see him. And, uh, you know, one of his students let me in and showed me into the bedroom. And he's sitting on the bed. And we're talking. I was asking about, I think it was the Galukpa school and so forth. And all the time, he's got his little prayer beads. And he's working them. And I can see his lips moving. And he'd answer questions, perfectly lucid, not the least bit distracted from our conversation, but with this mantra running underneath, like a murmuring brook, which uh, somebody, I think from one of the Eastern, uh, from Eastern Orthodox tradition, once described when unceasing prayer really gets going in your heart, murmur, like a murmuring brook, it's just there all the time. So this is, a, again, a very practical thing you can do. The next thing you can do is to start to consider 
all your tasks as being done for God. In the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna, for instance, tells Arjuna, whatever you do or eat or sacrifice or offer, do as an offering to me. That's very, again, it's very practical. With our sophistication, sometimes we try to read into this. We understand, oh yes, he means that all forms are God's forms and so forth, and our mind goes to work and we figure it all out and we never do it. We never try to actually do it. This is what a grace before meals is about. It's supposed to remind us when we eat. But you can make it even more specific. You can make each mouthful that you take an offering to the divine. You can make whatever little tasks you have to do. You're doing it for the divine. Theophane describes it this way. He says, the question arises, how can we hold the Lord in our attention while busy with various activities? You see, these aren't just questions you have now in 20th century America. These are questions seekers have always had. This is how it can be done. Whatever your occupation, great or small, reflect that it is the omnipresent Lord himself who orders you to perform it and who watches to see how you are carrying it out. If you keep this thought constantly in mind, you will fulfill attentively all your all the duties assigned to you and at the same time you will remember the Lord. So, let's say you're on your job. You're a nurse, right? So you no longer work for... Who do you work for, the head nurse, the board of directors? Who, who, who signs your paycheck? The government. The government, all right, the government. <laughs> you don't work for the government now. So you quit working for the government and you go to work for God. Now, if you took this attitude, it would make life a lot easier. It does. Yeah, and whatever you do. You, you work at LCC. Well, you no longer work for the head of your department. That's just the formal play. You work for God. You know, you're going to work, and uh, you can even check in when you first get there, you know, with God and report, here I am. What do you got for me to do? And then you look at your desk. You'll see what God laid out for you to do. Oh, there's a story that illustrates how this kind of mindfulness of the presence actually uh, becomes part infused with your life, part of your life. There's a great Sufi story about a master who had a favorite disciple, and all the other disciples were a little jealous of this disciple, and they finally asked the master, why do you always give him the honors and you know so forth? And he says, well, he said, uh, I'll show you. He says, uh, he called them all together, and he said, next time we meet, I want everybody to bring a chicken, a live chicken. So they all brought a live chicken the next meeting. So then he instructed, now I all want you to go off and take this chicken off where no one can see you and kill it and bring it back. So they all went off and they all came back and everybody except the favorite disciple had obeyed the master. They all came back with a dead chicken. And the favorite disciple came back with ah, 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 squawking chicken. And the master looked at him sternly and said, why did you disobey me? And he said, I didn't disobey you. He said, you told me to take the chicken someplace where no one would see me and kill it. But God always sees me. This disciple had not forgotten the presence of God. The next uh, area, and a little bit more complicated here, notice we're getting more complicated, this is step by step, is to bring this practice into relationships with other people and, and your uh, dealings with other people. Here's how Theophane describes it. Every visitor or every person we meet should be welcomed as a messenger from God. The first question we should always ask is this, what does the Lord wish me to do with or for this person? We should receive everyone as though they were the image of God, 
reverencing them and ready to help them all we can. Again, look at how this will change your attitude. And if you actually were going to try this, I would suggest trying it first on bank clerks and, and store clerks and uh, the people who fill up your gas tank, you know, and so forth. Not, not starting right away with your family because you're going to run into a lot of trouble. But you get used to it that way. Instead of going to the checkout line and, and getting impatient and waiting for the clerk to check you out because you got things to do and so forth, and, it, and having the attitude, this person's here to serve me, you stand in line and, oh, you notice this being. So what, what does God want me to do for this being? It's amazing what a little smile will do, a little a joke, a little, you know, some comment that humanizes that transaction. Boy, it also makes life a lot more fun. I'll tell you from my own experience. When I worked at the Bodhi Tree, it was amazing because in the middle of the heart of LA and the heart of West Hollywood, and there were all sorts of people from, you know, hippies and punk rockers with safety pins in their ears to, to straight business people and lawyers and Hollywood people, all sorts of people came in. Short, fat, tall, skinny, and everything. And it was really like, like a God's changing disguises, you know? putting on new masks and just constantly coming through the door in a new way. How do you like this costume? How do you like this mood? How do you like this attitude? You know, now I'm going to play grumpy. Now I'm going to play, I'm lost. You know, now I'm going to play arrogant. I know everything, you know, so it was wonderful. This is a particularly powerful practice with people that you have some animosity to some, uh, conflict with because it takes you out of the picture. You no longer are there to find out what you can get from that person, what they can get from you, and so forth. It's a new ballgame. They may think that way, but you don't have to think that way. So it's a, it's a, and this is the beginning of getting into the whole practice of love thy neighbor and all the things that Jesus talked about. But, you know, again, if you, if you wait until you understand these practices in their fullness, you're never going to find out. It comes from this step-by-step, -step, simple, simple little things. Remembrance of the divine awakens love or devotion in the heart. That's the whole point of it. Uh, Rabia, she was a great Sufi, said, Re the real work is to wake up the heart. Catherine of Genoa describes uh, such a moment of the heart being fully awake, or almost fully awake here, she says, as the soul feels itself being drawn upwards, the soul feels itself melting in the fire of that love of its sweet God. Most people, particularly in this culture, who are in a secular culture, have no idea of the kinds of deep and overwhelming and overpowering joy and bliss that is waiting there. And what, what gives them pleasure and joy pales by comparison. And one of the great tragedies from a spiritual point of view of looking particularly at a world that is so lost in secularism is not the overt suffering that people experience, but what they miss. What they miss. And this little simple practice of turning to God, of trying to get to know God, will automatically awaken this over time. By the way, a little over time is important here, a little patience, you know. If you go sit down the first day and, and uh, you know, start praying to God and you don't feel what she's describing, and you say, oh, well, this doesn't work and go about your business, well, forget it. 
notice how she talks about this. As the soul feels itself being drawn upwards. There's no work in here. There's no effort. This is something that happens to you. You don't have to generate it. If you just start with this little prayer practice, these things will unfold for you. But the true love or devotion to God here is not about a lot of emotion all the time. You will certainly have these sorts of experiences. This is why Simone Weil warns us. She says, it is necessary to know that love is a direction and not a state of the soul. This is very, very important. We associate, in our culture particularly, in the way our language is developed, love with some sort of emotional state, some sort of feeling going on. And then when we don't have that feeling, we think we've lost love. And she's got a wonderful image for this. Love is a direction. You keep moving in this direction towards more and more remembrance of God and more and more familiarity. So whatever you're feeling at the moment is relatively irrelevant. She says... It is necessary to know that love is a direction and not a state of the soul. If one is unaware of this, one falls into despair at the first onslaught of affliction. And Check this out with your own experience or people you know. They, they make contact with the divine. They get this sense of walking in the presence of God. They uh, go on retreat or whatever, and they get these great experiences of bliss that Catherine talked about, and then they uh, pass. And then they're crushed. They thought this, uh, this, they're going to dwell in this emotion for the rest of their lives. But if you realize it's a direction, that won't, that won't throw you off course. Those, uh, swings in mood and feeling and emotion. Indeed, you can have some, uh, rough times emotionally. Love isn't always feeling good. It can also entail periods of aridity aridity like an arid desert and despair and Catherine describes those too by the way she says incapable of feeling any joy the soul seemed to be stifled in melancholy completely at a loss as to what to do neither heaven nor earth offered it a place of rest and it avoided the company of men maybe some of you already have experienced this on a spiritual path it's often called a desert experience if you understand that love is a direction, then you continue you through the desert. If you don't, you turn back. The minute you hit the desert, you turn back. You run back and, and try to find some solace, some consolation, and something else, you know. You say, oh, well, this is no good. Maybe I'll go back to law school. Really. Now, notice this is all developing. All you've had to do is start with this remembrance. Start with this word, if that's what you chose. This just starts to unfold of its own. This love of God starts to vividly expose all your self-centeredness, which is, of course, what keeps you separate from the divine. Theophane describes it this way. On reaching spiritual maturity, uh, note this, on reaching spiritual maturity, man becomes acutely conscious of his sinfulness and corruption. And don't let those words throw you as writing the Christian tradition. It means your selfishness, your self-centeredness, all the little petty desires and attachments and all that that you have. From a mystic's point of view, that's what it means. And his sense of contrition and repentance grows ever more profound. Why? This isn't uh, contrition and repentance like, oh, daddy, I've been bad. 
This is repentance and contrition because you realize this is what is the obstacle, this is what is holding you from this infinite love. And you get that, you really begin to understand that in a profound way. Then he says, tears are the measure of progress, and unceasing tears are a sign of coming purification. You'll find this teaching in a lot of traditions too. This goes completely uh, against the teachings of this culture. If you walked in and found somebody uh, weeping in the, on the floor, and you asked them why, and they said, I'm, I, I realize that that's this awful selfishness I have keeps me from God, Oh, you want to call a psychiatrist or get them into therapy or do something. If you have never wept on a spiritual path, you're nowhere near spiritual maturity. I'll tell you that right now. That's true. If you think you're going to go through a spiritual path and never weep, and then and you're going to avoid that or dodge that somehow, you're kidding yourself. You're going around in circles here. You're, you're just at the waiting end of the pool where the kitties get in. Do you know what I mean? You haven't even struck out to the deep end. You haven't even gotten up to where it starts to get dangerous, you know, where you're standing on tiptoe. So don't be afraid of tears. Don't feel something's going wrong. As he says, this is a sign of your maturity. And guess what? This acute sense of your own self-centeredness naturally leaves, uh, leads to self-inquiry. So this is, as I said in the beginning, that these two approaches, asking who is God and who am I, are really asking the same question. You're just choosing to start with one or the other, but eventually they come together because you realize you are never going to know God completely until you know yourself and see through all these obstacles and these desires and attachments. And so here's how Ananda Moyamai says, it is necessary to try to dedicate to the Supreme every single action of one's daily life. By the way, that's what Theophane just said, wasn't it? By so doing, one will gradually come to feel, how can I offer him greed, anger, and other undesirable qualities of this kind? To him who is so infinitely dear to me, who is my very own, does one give that which is bad to one's loved ones? What's beautiful about this, it becomes a, a natural desire on your part. Instead of a, a wrestling with your selfish side, your ego, and so forth. You naturally want to drop these things because you yourself now have your own experience of the divine and of this kind of love. It also leads to, again, quite naturally, to detachment. And Ananda Mahayamaya continues, In the measure as one loves God, detachment from sense objects ensues. Feeling pulled towards the divine and indifferent to sense objects occurs simultaneously. Renunciation happens of itself. There is no need to give up anything. If you start with uh, self-inquiry, and if you have little or no experience with the divine, then the whole first part of your path is usually going to be a big battle with yourself. You know you're supposed to give up selfishness. You know you're supposed to practice detachment. This is all the teachings say. And then you get in a big fight with yourself. Because you don't have this extra added factor of this motivation of wanting to, of yearning, this experience of this love and the presence of the divine. And if you have that, then as she says, you don't have to give up anything. You just cease to want to do those things that, that stand between you and God.
And then persistence in this practice of remembrance ultimately leads to grace. And Theophane has a beautiful way of putting this. He says grace is within us all the time. It's hidden. It's there. That's not the problem. Only one thing is necessary to give this grace free scope to act. Those who commit themselves irrevocably to grace will pass under its influence and it shapes and forms them in a way known only to itself. At this stage, everything becomes really easy. Why? There are no choices to make anymore. Grace is guiding you. You don't have to decide things. You see that grace shining through things, and the world becomes full of beauty for you. A beauty you've never noticed before, in, in just in ordinary things. In people, in, in, uh, in garbage, and you, know, you, don't, you won't have to go off to Hawaii to find beauty. Even in the midst of the most horrible afflictions, there's an underlying attitude of love and gratitude. And I did a whole Sunday on reading from Eddie Hillison. Anybody who has not read her, go read her. It's an interrupted life. The diaries of Eddie Hillison, E-T-T-Y-H-I-L-L-E-S-U-M. And it's been reprinted just recently by Washington Square Press. And they're 595, I think, which is in this day and age very recently. Anyway, she is uh, writing uh, in in, uh, not Auschwitz, Westerbork, which is a concentration camp on her way to Auschwitz. And she writes about tears of love and gratitude flowing down her face just to be on God's earth under God's heaven. It's quite remarkable uh, testament to the power of this grace, this love, that even in situations like that, it shines through. Finally, grace leads to complete self-surrender, which opens to gnosis or union. And here's how Theophane describes it. The soul should realize how powerless it is alone. Therefore, expecting nothing of itself, let it fall down in humility before God, and in its own heart recognize itself to be nothing. The grace, which is all-powerful, will out of this nothing create in it everything. Uh, this is this is the end of this, just starting with this one little word, this is the end. This realization that there, that you are nothing. Now, listen to Ananda Moyamai. Here's how she puts it. Now, she's a Hindu, a contemporary Hindu mystic of this century. Theophane was a, a Eastern Orthodox mystic of the last century. When at his lotus feet one has sacrificed without reserve whatever small power one possesses, so that there is nothing left that one may call one's own. Do you know what he does at that fortunate moment? Out of your littleness he makes you perfect, whole, and then nothing remains to be desired or achieved. The moment your self-dedication becomes complete, at that very instant occurs the revelation of the indivisible, unbroken perfection which is ever revealed by the self, with a capital S. That's remarkable. That's the same words with a few little telltale phrases like a lotus feet that, uh, you know, Theophane wouldn't use. But it's exactly the same teaching. Theophane says, let the soul realize that it is powerless alone. She says, she puts it, uh, 
When at his lotus feet, one has sacrificed without reserve whatever small power one possesses, so that there is nothing left that one may call one's own. The soul recognizes itself to be nothing. These are interchangeable. They're so close here. Again, if you took the path of inquiry, you would get exactly to this point. Kala Rinpoche, who's a Tibetan Buddhist, and their path is basically a path of self-inquiry. The whole thing is to realize anatman, no self, and so forth. Where does it end? He was asked, is there an end to the path? And he said, yes, there's an end to the path. The end of the path is when you realize you are nothing, and in being nothing, you are everything. That's just what Theophane says. It says, the, the grace, which is all-powerful, out of this nothing, create in it everything. Exact same teaching. So they, the two paths come together at this point where you start looking to yourself to see all your obstacles of inquiry, and then they, at the end, they just move together to exactly the same realization. No matter what tradition you're from, no matter uh, what school within any tradition, mystical tradition. But notice, the, the beauty of this is, notice how simple all this is, this particular approach. Just starting with this remembrance. You don't have to change anything in your life, except to maybe to create a little time for a little solitude. All you need for your prayer is one word. And then all you need to do then start doing is remember this one word during the day. There's nothing complicated or sophisticated about this. You just have to start remembering it. Everything unfolds from this, you know. You don't have to do anything else. You just start taking one step forward and uh, the next step and the next step and pretty soon you're being carried along. And this is what uh, Jesus said. Listen to what he said. The kingdom of God is like a man who sows his seed in the ground, and he sleeps and wakes night and day, and the seed grows and increases without his knowing how. For the earth bears fruit of itself, first the blade, then the ear, and then full grain in the ear. But when the grain gives its yield, the man immediately puts forth his sickle, for the time of harvest has come. The seed is the seed of remembrance. And the harvest is gnosis. And this description is just perfect for this kind of practice. You put the seed in, you do the remembrance, and everything else will bear fruit, just like the way the, the uh, uh, plants grow out of the ground. You don't have to do anything, except watch them grow and enjoy them. And the gnosis, the realization, is what frees you from as Jesus said, the, the truth that frees you from suffering and death. And it's important for us to remember that this is exactly what's at stake here. You are suffering and you are death. And if you are so busy with your life and so involved in your career and, and your job and this and that, that you don't have time to put aside 15 minutes to remember a name, I strongly suggest then you should change your job, give up your career, make some change in your life. Because, finally, as Jesus also said, for what does it profit a man if he gain the whole world but loses his own soul? So, 
if you can do nothing else on a spiritual path, at least remember to remember. Any questions or comments? Yeah. Um, when I was a little girl, probably about age five or so, I had a prayer. I don't know why this came to me, but the prayer was simply, thank you, God, for everything. And um, I said that every night, and somehow I knew to match the breath. So I'd exhale it, and I'd inhale it, and then I'd visualize. I can't believe at five I was doing this, but I would visualize it circling my body every night before I went to sleep. So I did that from probably age five to at least age 19. And then um, it became a background um, for every activity. Thank you, God, for everything. It was like a jingle. Mm -hmm. It's like, thank you, God, thank you, God, thank you, God, for everything. So I could match it with my steps and my breath and everything. Um, and then about two years ago, um, I had a, a disillusionment where I asked God for something and I didn't get it. It was like, it was, it was a, a justice that I wanted. And I didn't get it. And I lost the ability to say, thank you, God, for everything after that. So it's, like it's, it's left me at this point. Yes, but you see, you didn't, uh, you didn't do what you were praying. You didn't thank God for the injustice, did you? <laughs> no, if you thank God for everything, then that means everything. I, well, and I lost belief that there was anybody hearing. You see, I, I imagine that big daddy in the sky that was actually hearing them. Yeah, and this is, but this is a very good example. Now, if you, if you take this as a lesson, you can see that it's your own desire now, wanting things your way, self-centeredness, that cuts you off from the divine. So you started not praying for God's will to be done. You started praying for your will to be done. Your will wasn't done. You got pissed off at God. And so now you're not on speaking terms anymore, right? Yeah. I mean, it, you know, it comes down well, to that. It almost seems to go beyond that. It, it, like the concept that I had of God out there as the big daddy in the sky mm -hmm. crumbled. And, and now I don't know where or how to start again without that concept of that man out there listening to me. And that's, that's, uh, I mean, that's, this is an excellent thing if you can take advantage of it. It'd be, uh, not Abina Rabi, um, Al-Ghazali writes about this. The faith of our naive belief is like a glass. When it breaks, it can't be put back together again. But it's absolutely necessary that that happens in order to move forward. Yes. But the point is not to fall into despair. This is just what Simone Weil said, you know. If you don't realize that love is a direction, then the first onslaught of uh, affliction drives you into despair and you, you're off the path. So it's a direction. So this is great. So now God's more of a mystery to you. Mm -hmm. But keep moving in the direction. Well, I haven't let up. I don't feel like I've gotten off the path, and obviously I'm here, I'm still seeking. And sometimes I, I try on that prayer, and I can't do it. It's like I don't believe what I'm saying when I say, thank you, God. There's a book uh, we have by Alex Taylor, who is one of Dr. Wolf's students, and she writes about a very similar thing. She, uh, she was in a little meditating, a meditative group, a group of meditators, and I don't know how she got onto. I've forgotten. But the idea was she was going to say the Lord's Prayer. 
she'd been raised Catholic, but now this is later in life. And she started to say it and she found she couldn't say it. So this one guy in the group suggested to her, she go line by line and do like one line for a week and then the next line until she pinpointed, she got to the actual line that she got stuck on. So she went all the way through until she got to thy will be done and she could not say it. And then she realized the reason why it's like, I mean, thy will be done. I mean, my will's never going to be done. This was like, you know, too much to give up. She didn't trust God, you know, this, these questions. And so finally she stuck with it. She was determined to, to get through and to be able to say it. And then she had to mean it. She wasn't, you know, she, like I said before, it couldn't be just mechanical saying it. She had to mean it. And finally in the middle of the night, after this intense struggle, she was able to say it. And then she said, it was like, you know, just this inundated with bliss and joy and so forth. So you might want to read that chapter. Maybe there's some hint in there for you. And, um, do we have it in the library? Well, maybe you could show it to her uh, after the meeting. Yes, you're gonna. Yeah, I just wanted to share some of my experience in this regard because um, I, I had very similar experiences to what Mary Song was saying, and that I had a rather naive uh, religious faith uh, until I was in my mid-teens, and then I uh, lost that and became afflicted with the more intellectual, philosophical approach to life, and. Uh, so for the first couple of years of my spiritual path, I just didn't relate to this God thing at all. It was more of a, uh, intellectual philosophical inquiry and, um, there came a point I, uh, around the time that we had our retreat on devotion, uh, where, you know, I was working with devotional practices, trying to, and having a real problem because frankly, I didn't believe in this God thing. And uh, so, you know, I, I had gotten the teaching that uh, if you can't pray, you know, if you can't think of anything to pray about, pray that, you know, talk to God how you can't talk to God. And so I took that seriously, and I just started from that basis that, God, I don't even believe in you. You know, how am I supposed to pray to you? And, uh, and the, the results that I got were just so mind-blowing. Uh, and it was, it, it didn't, you know, I had the same problem with not being able to deal with the EU. I know there's no you out there to, to pray to. Um, and yet, uh, the mystery just started revealing itself at deeper and deeper levels. And uh, the, the clear impression subjectively was that the prayers were answered in such a powerful, unambiguous way. Uh, so... Um, it, uh, I think that instruction of, you know, if you, even if you don't believe, even if you can't pray, you know, talk to God about that, just kind of try it. And, uh, and, uh, it, from my experience, the results are quite uh, dramatic and clear. It can of hike, it might've helped. <laughs> I had a, a funny experience when I was younger. I was like probably nine or 10, I was playing basketball and I used to daydream a lot when I was that age and probably a lot of people did. But, um, you know, the lot of seconds are counting down, you know, that kind of thing. But I was thinking about God at the time. I was inquiring about it and thought about it a little bit. I was playing. I was pretty close to the basket, and I was, right before I went to shoot, I was like, well, um, if God exists, then show me a sign, kind of like a natural question. And I kind of shot the ball, not making a relationship between shooting and the question, but it's happened to be at that time. And I shot the ball, and right after I 
asked that question, the ball came back and hit me on the head. <laughs> <laughs> I put it on, I played it off, like it was no big deal, but it just came right back, boink. <laughs> like a Zen master. <laughs> well, going back to what you were, I'm sorry, did you want to? Uh, I get to this place where, aha, I, I, it feels like I've, I've found it. And then I, I get to the next step in the next moment. No, that's not really it. The opposite uh, is not really it either. Is and then getting to the next step uh, and 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 trying to understand or verbalize um, the place that my being is at. It's beyond words. You know, it's. It feels like a, it's some sort of astounding, lucid confusion. <laughs> uh, it's the best way I can describe it. Um, and so, yeah, I have, yeah, I, I've had that problem too. If I'm talking to God, who is it that I'm talking to? Am I not talking to my, to myself? If I'm, I'm using I and other, then there's separation. If I'm using, aha, I found it, and then the next moment I'm saying, no, it's the opposite. Well, the opposite's not true either. And then I'm left with what? Some astounding, lucid confusion, once again. The mind always <laughs> wants to know the answer before it asks the question. Our minds are amazing this way, you know? I want to know who I'm praying to before I'm going to pray. And in, in spiritual uh, practice, you find out after you pray. You do not know truly what any practice is about until you've done it. It's the practice reveals itself. So this is really what faith is from a spiritual point of view. It's like a trust. It's being willing to take a risk. It's being willing to make a mistake. And uh, truly speaking, uh, the whole spiritual path is be willing to make an, an eternal mistake. You stake your soul on it, so to speak. You know, in, but in that self, it's not. It's not ultimately a mistake. Well, you know, but you don't know yet. So you see, this is the, the mind doesn't know. The mind has no certainty. The heart can start to have certainty. And then trust and faith is replaced by a kind of now a certainty. At least a certainty that you don't care anymore what happens to yourself because, because you recognize the value of what's going on. But it's always what I try to, what I'm trying to drive home is you have to try these things. No matter how simple and unsophisticated they sound. That's the only way you'll start to know really what these practices have to teach you. And if you, if you keep waiting till the mind figures it out, you'll never really get into the practice. So it's, it, it, the, whole, the whole thing is about taking little, little leaps until you're finally the point where there's nothing left to take but the big leap, you know. <laughs> but each step, you're, you know, you have to throw yourself into the practice, trust the practice, or throw yourself into this or that, you know. It's, it's still confusing. You say, I don't know, but yet I do know. Like you began to talk with, we, uh, we all know. We I'm, all know. We all. I'm speaking the most. I'm speaking an ordinary, relative uh, yeah. way here. I'm not. Uh, this is the whole point. Without any subtleties or complexities, because I'm just giving uh, instruction here. I'm not dealing in and trying to deal in any sort of you know uh, philosophical understanding of these things. So I'm talking about the simple, ordinary, everyday mind. You know, just like I don't know. You know how to. Uh, repair the electrical wiring in this house. I don't know what this practice is going to do. So it's like somebody says, well, try it, you know, see what happens. And look, what, what do you got to lose? I mean, you know, suffering. 
Yes, no, that's, that's <laughs> suffering and death. But I don't want to let go. <laughs> well, that's a big problem for a lot of people. <laughs> it really is. That's how they know who they are, because they suffer, you see. If they let go of that, maybe they wouldn't be anybody. It seems like the, uh, there's a, the only thing I can be sure of is that everything is impermanent at this stage, uh, this aha feeling. That oh, that's good. And, that and the next moment uh, of the grief or the next moment, astounding confusion. One of the first things you look at in, the, in a self-inquiry practice is the impermanence of all these things. And you look at it and look at it until not only are you convinced intellectually, but you begin to experience it that way. And, you know, this is really starting to experience the presence of God, because it's the experiential belief that things are permanent, fixed, and solid that hides God from us. So you start seeing into the impermanent nature of everything, and that, uh, that divine dimension, you know, starts to flash through in little ways. A nothingness that's absolutely full, overflowing with fullness. And, you know, we, then we get off into all the higher level paradoxes. But, Right now, all I'm just saying, it really is, I'm speaking the most ordinary way. Who am I? Who's this God? And all that. The mind's never going to figure that out. So if the practice appeals to you, just go do it. Just go do it for six months. There, the, that's, that could be part of the practice, though, is it not? I mean, to exhaust the mind to I, the point... I said it, yes, yes, you know, the, no, I said this is practice in this true, but then, but you have to go into that practice with the same sort of intensity and single mindedness and, and with the same sort of sense of you're willing to risk everything that you'd go into any practice with. Uh, Dr. Wolf was the best contemporary living example that I know of. He gave up a career in academia. He, he graduated from Harvard as, you know, with a degree in uh, philosophy, top honors and all that, to pursue a spiritual path. I mean, right off the bat, he took a, a huge risk because he knew that if he was in an academia at that time, he would constantly be having to compromise his practice. This was 1911, you know. Nobody would hear of mysticism. And then he pursued this for 24 years. 24 years, you know. I mean, this was this, the, the great single passion of his life. It wasn't something he did on the side, you know. He'd take Shankara off into the mountains with him and, and meditate on it and really work it out. So he came to an absolute logical certainty that Shankara had to be right. And then he still pursued it until he started getting what he called noetic insights. They weren't full-blown gnosis yet, but he started to understand it at the level of the heart, a deeper level. He didn't do much meditation, or he certainly didn't do any prayer or anything, but he pursued it with the same, uh, this fire in his soul, and that's what made it work for him. So, I said in the very beginning, each one of us is unique, and there's a unique configuration of obstacles and so forth, but I'm trying to speak to people who are feeling somewhat at sea, somewhat at a loss, and especially if you're in a householder's life, and you have other duties and stuff that seem to take you away from a spiritual practice, here's a way to begin in the simplest possible way and to slowly bring everything into your path, simply by expanding the remembrance of God in every situation, every relationship. And th then the path will take over. The, that grace will take over, and you won't have to do anything else. Yes, you've been wanting. Oh, um, well, I was just going to... I've been trying to do a Japa practice now for a long time, and... Uh, um, one sometimes I uh, go for walks, and with the idea that it's going to be a remembrance walk, and that I'm going to do job practice or think of or 
meditate on gratitude and contemplate things from a spiritual perspective. And today I, I left to, for a walk in the country to, in the morning to try to, to, you know, to do that. That was my intention. And I realized I had walked two miles before I, didn't, before ah. I remembered, you know. I mean, I, I had the best intentions when I set up for the walk. And to, but, I mean, I was really glad that I remembered eventually. Uh-huh. But, you know, I was like, oh. And when it struck me, it was like, wow, you know, wow. You know, I guess I was busy suffering all the rest of that time, you know. Well, or distracted, not necessarily yeah. with heavy suffering. But this uh-huh. is the point. But then, then you think, oh, okay. So now don't just go for a walk. Two miles, go for a walk to a rock and sit down at that rock, mm-hmm. sacred rock. So there's a sacred rock on a hill. So now you're not going to just go for a walk and get lost and, you know, so now you're going to go to that sacred rock. Mm-hmm. And now the fact that it's a sacred rock, when that's implanted in your mind, becomes at the moment a reminder itself. So you're at the sacred rock. So that's reminded you. And, you know, the more you remember, the more that conditioning of being distracted is broken. And mm-hmm. and in a certain sense, it sets up a new conditioning, but it's conditioning that's taking you in that direction of love that Simone mm-hmm. talked about. you know what I mean? It doesn't have to be complicated. It just all can start from one little seed. A good teaching that would be modified in this way, which is getting a little bit away from the simplicity, but not too far, is, um, is usually when we associate... God with good things, like what she was saying, you know, we thank God when, you know, we get a new car, you know, something good happens. Um, and so that's when we're easily reminded maybe of God. But a good idea maybe, someone taught me, is when we suffer, that's the alarm that goes off, to be aware, to inquire. So that might be also the alarm to thank God, you know, for the suffering or whatever, which would fill in that gap. Right, uh, right, certainly. And these are things that... that we have to wait for. You wait for an opportunity for suffering. Then you hope you remember. Do you know what I mean? This prayer practice is something you can take initiative with. You can implement it now. You know, and that's what. It's not. It doesn't invalidate all the things you're saying and talking about. Then, once you've implemented the practice, the other things start to fall into place around this practice. You, you know. Well, you're welcome to stay around, and uh, we can chat some more. If you want to use the library and. Um, have some tea? Please do. Peace to you all.